0: Good morning, morning. Turn with me if you would, to Luke chapter 2, after a bit of a month in this book, we've made it past the first chapter, but I don't feel bad, I think it's the longest chapter in the New Testament, so we had some justification to spend a significant amount of time there, it was 80 verses, chapter 1, today we'll start with chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. So it was And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And your calendar is not wrong. It is September, but not in December. This probably sounds like a Christmas message, which in some ways it is. But uh, let me uh, reorient my notes here. I've done this at the beginning. Uh, talking about Christmas, uh, my wife and I were invited in our school to participate in uh, the Winter Festival. So just those of you who don't know, we live uh, just about a mile from here and we go to uh, the Ardenwood Elementary School. And... Um, The PTA personally came and talked to me about participating in the winter festival and wanted, as she knew we we were from a Jewish background, or I'm from a Jewish background, and she was hoping we will do something, you know, non-Christian at the uh, at the winter festival to have a a Hanukkah table. And uh, she's actually she has an interesting background. I think she's she's from an Indian background, but she's Muslim, and actually grew up in France. But uh, our school is very wide, has a very wide culture range to it. Most of the people are probably from India or Southeast Asia. And yet, there is this attraction to the winter festival, as they call it. Really, they're thinking of Christmas. Uh, when Christmas time comes around here, you'll go to the stores and there's all these pretty decorations and there's this nice Christmas background and you're encouraged to go out and buy presents because that's the engine that drives our economy. And uh, there's there's a great, there is a great sense of of joy that people tend to have at that time. The problem with that joy is it's fabricated. It's not real. It has no basis. Really, the things that stimulate it is the music, it is the decorations, um, and the ornaments, and all these other things. There's no real basis for that joy. So, what is the basis for the joy? of the Christmas season. And I need to be careful. I want to distance myself a little bit because what we call Christmas in this country may not always have much to do with, uh, with this passage. And yet, because this passage is associated with the mind with the Christmas season, please forgive me if I sometime lapse into that phrase. Uh, in truth, what we have here is the fulfillment of what we looked at for the last few Sundays. We talked about the promise of the Messiah coming. Well, finally, He's here. Finally, he arrived, and the description is given to us in verses one through seven, how he was born, and it probably wasn't what Mary imagined when the Lord came to her and said, "You will have a son, and he will have the throne of his uh, of his father David, and you know, to the end of his kingdom, or to his kingdom there shall be no end." I don't know what she had in mind, but it probably wasn't this. Traveling uh, through, probably on foot in her last stages of pregnancy to Bethlehem in order to help pay taxes to uh, finance the gladiator games in Rome. And uh, finding that there was no room, so even among her own people in that city, there was nobody who would offer her hospitality. The best she and uh, her husband can (coughs) offer Uh, the child is uh, a manger or the filter of an animal, probably suggesting he was born in a barn. Okay, you... And this was really so unusual that the angel can point to it as a sign. If this was a normal occurrence, the angel could say there is a sign, you know, go and find a babe in a manger. They'd find dozens. But there wasn't. There was only one. Even in that time, this was very, very unusual, hard, harsh circumstances in which Christ was born. And yet, there is in the hills angels appearing to you, Shepherds, and they're giving them this message, and this is the phrase that you're most likely to hear in the Christmas season taken out of this chapter. They'll say, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. So having joy in the Christmas season is not wrong, but it needs a basis. And the basis given here is called the glad tidings. So there was a good news that the angel shared, which was the Uh, should have been the basis for this joy that was felt. Um, Just a comment about the Christmas lights and the ornaments and the music and the presents as being a source of joy. None of those existed that first Christmas. Okay, For Mary and Joseph it was a dark Christmas unless there was a candle or something that lit this barn where Christ was born. And yet there was great joy. So this joy that the angels are talking about is independent of circumstance. It's, and it's also not a joy that's designed to be experienced once a year. It's a joy that's supposed to be there all the time. So let's try to think a little bit about the basis for the joy which the angels were here proclaiming. In verse 11, it says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So right there, that is the gem of the chapter, if you would. That is the reason or that is the basis given of why we should have joy. Now, uh, the, starting with the first word is a Savior. Now, if I tell you there's a Savior, it suggests that you need to be saved. Right? And I think one of the reasons most people miss this good news, good news uh, glad tidings that should have brought them great joy, is they missed the fact that they need to be saved. And we talked about it this morning, how before the good news, there's bad news. And without the bad news, you're probably going to miss the good news. And that's exactly the case here. So we have to start with the fact that as a Savior, that's the good news. Well, that means we need to be saved. Well, what is it that we need to be saved from? That's the bad news, okay? So I'll be talking about some bad news now. But the goal is that we can all rejoice. There will be this great joy. Okay. Well, what's the bad news? To really understand it, what is it that Jesus came to save us from? Now, we can say it in one verse. When the name Jesus was given, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so he has to save us from sins. Now, most people don't have a very strong concept of sin. I remember that about... Myself, when uh, Rick Rick is not here now, so I can talk about him. But he 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 was the guy who was trying to meet with me and help me see my need to be saved. And I uh, talked a lot about sin. And I said, you know, Rick, I'm not comfortable with this word you keep using, the word sin. And Rick said, well, it's an important word. I can't, you know, I have to talk about it. Um, but maybe to help us understand the seriousness of sin. We're gonna to turn to the chapter it all started. That's Genesis chapter 3. And to give you background, I'm not gonna read the whole chapter. Uh, God, when God made mankind, Adam and Eve, He gave them one law. That law was not to eat of a certain tree. They had lots of trees to choose from. Okay, so this wasn't a hard law that He gave them. But uh, this, Satan came in the disguise of a serpent and he basically suggested to Adam and Eve, look, it's for your own good if you eat it. God is not looking out for your own good. And you should really take things into your own hand and do your own thing. That sound familiar? That's the mentality of the world. You know, do your own thing. And they decided to follow Satan's advice and they took of that fruit and ate it. And that was the one law God told them not to break. The one law God gave them. And God warned them that the day they will do it, they will surely die. Okay. So let's start with the consequence of that action in verse 8 of chapter 3. Actually, I'll, I'll step back to verse 7. I'll step back to verse 6. All right, Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of, the, of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So there it is. That's the sin. The one thing God told them not to do. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called... Adam and said to him, Where are you? Right here we have the first consequence of sin. Up to now, Adam and Eve had a relationship with God. They were connected to Him, and it makes sense. He created them. He is the one that was supporting their existence day by day, whether it was providing fruit for them on the tree, or it was giving them air to breathe, or it was energizing their heart to continue to beat so their blood would keep flowing through their body. They were completely sustained by God. And he made them for his purpose, to have a relationship with them. That was their experience up to now. Well, now they've disobeyed God. And the first thing we see is a disconnect. A disconnect, right? Uh, first of all, they—they all of a sudden, there's something wrong in their world. They're naked. They've been naked all along. But all of a sudden, they don't feel right about themselves anymore. So they're trying to cover up. That's guilt. Uh, the next is they hear God coming. They run and hide. Why are you hiding from God? Because the relationship with him was broken. And then we see God saying, where are you? Can indicated the fact, all of a sudden, they're not connected to God. They're not where they should be anymore. And this is what God meant when he said, in the day you will eat of it, you will surely die. It's the disconnect from the creator of the universe. Look, you cannot exist without him. Now, it's true that God, in his mercy and grace, continues to sustain people. He continues to beat their heart. He continues to give them breath. He continues to provide food for them. But they're disconnected from him. And, the, and we'll get to it. Eventually that has to end. This is mercy in every breath you take, every heartbeat is grace and mercy from God because you're disconnected from the one who holds you and supports you and gives you all these things. <clears throat> He's also the one who made you for himself to have a relationship with. And without that relationship you have no purpose to exist. So this is really death, the disconnect from God. Now, most of us are, are not very sensitive to that fact. This is really the bad news, this disconnect from God. Most of us are not aware of it. Okay? We come into this world, we're kind of used to how things are. Yes, you know, we're not connected to God, but we were never connected to God. And most people we know are not connected to God. So, yes, what's the big deal about it? So God helps us out and he gives us uh, what we would often call symptoms. And that's when you have a disease. Uh, you might have cancer killing you on the inside, and you won't know it. And uh, at some point, it will show itself up. It will manifest itself in symptoms. Something in your body is not going to work so good anymore. And you'll go to the doctor. The doctor will take an MRI and will say, okay, it's over. The cancer is throughout your body. So actually, symptoms are a good thing because they show us the problem. And that's what God does next. We'll go ahead and skip to verse 16, it says to the woman, he said, so this is God responding to them because of what they've done. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. So there's three things here. There's first a consequence for the woman. And there's a consequence for the man. And then there's a consequence for both. Remember, these are, are symptoms. <clears throat> the they, uh, word that often comes to me is God tells uh, Adam in the middle of verse 17, curses the ground for your sake. You can almost substitute in there for your good. All these things are for your good. These are terrible things. This has been the scourge of the world. And yet it's good because it shows there is that deeper problem of disconnect with God. Right, which is death. This is really the symptoms of it. Now, the privilege of being a preacher is that God had to, has to somehow get to you the message before you can give it to the congregation. And uh, I think the Lord wanted, in some special ways, to make sure I appreciate these uh, symptoms. If you would, the scourge of the world or all these uh, sufferings that are mentioned here. Recently, you know, we've been uh, diagnosed with a child. That's my wife and I. And uh, we, we praise the Lord for giving us a child, and yet there's certain suffering that's associated with it. And uh, in the case of my wife, it typically shows up early. This time around, it showed up earlier. And that's what people often refer to as morning sickness. Except in my wife, it seems to be all day long. And... Uh, that's really just one of the many aspects of the suffering that's associated with childbearing. Again, it, it refers to what God told Eve, uh, in pain you shall bring forth children. We typically think of the pain uh, that happens in the delivery room. And yes, that's a great amount of pain, as I can attest, having witnessed it three times and experienced it none. But uh, the pain starts before, it's there, and it ha- continues later. Uh, we have three children three wonderful children. We praise the Lord for them. But there's often a certain amount of pain involved in the child-rearing and the training of the children. And in fact, there is so much pain associated with it that a lot of people today will stop after having one or two. They'll say, ah, that's enough. (laughs) And uh, I think they miss out, myself. I think there's a you know, it, it it gets, in the sense, easier with time. You you figure out, okay, this is how they behave. This is how I can train them. And uh, actually, the older children also really help the younger ones find their place in life. So I think, to some extent, the deterioration we have in the behavior of young people today is because parents will stop after one or two, when the parents still have, have no clue how to raise their children. But uh, some people won't have any children at all. They look ahead, oh, I don't want any of that. And in college we used to call them DINKs. It stands for Double Income No Kids. And um, you know they they think that's great. We escape that suffering. Uh, it's interesting if you listen to the news, you hear a lot of time advertisement to help uh, women become pregnant later in life. And I think that's because they find out too late that they really wanted to have children. There really is that need God puts it inside of a woman to have children. And she reaches the age of uh, the late thirties or forties, and wait a second, you know, I I want to have children. So it's really not a solution. This escape is a non-escape uh, from it. So you can't you can't escape from it. It's it's a symptom God designed to show you not all is right in the world. Uh, the next thing here is uh, next curse, the curse for man was really the difficulty of making a living for himself and the family. In those days, it was farming. And so thorns probably meant specifically you're trying to get your food and you get stabbed and boy this is no fun I don't want to do this but then you get hungry so you go back to it you don't really have a choice again you're stuck and um my my fun part of experiencing it is this week my company had a 5 to 10% layoff and uh you get all of a sudden people you know really get upset and stressed about what's going on in their work and we have a big meeting and the uh Vice President explains that and says, you know, we need to be mean and lean in order to succeed in this world. And it brings up to the fact that this is reality. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be fun to provide for my family. And yet it's something I can't escape of. I, I need to provide for my family. Uh, one of the symptoms. And the last one here uh, is death, right? It says uh, in the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall be returned. This, which makes sense if you think about it. God created us to have a relationship with him. A disconnect happened. We're separated from him. God is not just going to sustain us forever. It has to come to an end. And uh, my, my fun part of experiencing that this week, actually it started a few weeks ago. I felt a lump right here uh, under my elbow. And I decided, well, you know, maybe a knot in my muscle, you know, it's okay. And then after a couple of weeks, I was, well, no, maybe not. And I checked with Michael on a Wednesday, a week ago, and um, Michael felt it and said, oh, I don't think that's a knot in your muscle. I think you should see the doctor about it. So I go to the doctor, and the doctor feels it. And I don't know what that is. So, you know, here's the blood test. Here's the ultrasound. Here's the MRI. you know, Here's an appointment with a surgeon. I don't know what you're going to need to take care of. And um, I brought it up as a, for a prayer on Wednesday, and I appreciate the continued prayer of the saints about it. But whether this does me in or not, one day I will be done in. Okay, that's death. You cannot escape it. And uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh famous line about it is, In this world, nothing is certain except for death and taxes. Now, let me tell you. From my statistics I've seen, about 50% of the people in this country pay no taxes. So taxes is not certain, but death is. Okay, and the Bible says it is appointed for man once to die, but after this the judgment. So you do not escape death. Unless you happen to be here when the Lord returns. And then you can skip that part because you come face to face with Him immediately. But, uh, and that really, that really is the last part of the bad news, so we'll go from the third chapter in the Bible to the third to last. So go ahead and flip all the way to the end. And with all this bad news in mind, remember, this is good news. Because we were told a Savior was born. And this is what we're talking about, the Savior, is the Savior who's supposed to save us from our sins and restore us from God, and save us from all these things we're reading and talking and thinking about. So this is bad news to help us understand the good news. So, Revelation chapter 20, I hope I was accurate saying it's the third one from last. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no room or no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works, then death and hate were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, or you could say the final death. And this is really the end of the story. It started with the breaking apart of, of the relationship with God because of sin. We've seen the symptoms of of the suffering that is on the earth culminates in, in earthly death. And then at the end, well, you come face-to-face face with God and give an answer for your life. But the reality of it is if you've been disconnected from God, and you've never been reconnected to God, this is really just a sentence. Okay, There is judgment. Your works will be concerned, but it's not like you'll be found just somehow. It'll basically be your life will be a demonstration that you are a son of Adam and Eve who persisted in their rebellion against God, doing your own thing. And God will close the book and say, well, that's it. And that's what the lake of fire and hell is, a complete eternal separation from God. In this world, we'll, we still experience some of his grace and mercy, even as, as unbelievers and shaking our fist against God. He still provides food for us. He still keeps that heart beating, gives us everything we need to live. In hell, none of that happens. You'll experience no grace, no mercy, none of the goodness of God. Aren't you happy we have a Savior? Back to Luke. So we were thinking about the word Savior, the substance of the good news. There were two more words that won't take us as long to cover. Uh, The first one is uh, Christ. Christ is the uh, Greek word or the English transliteration of the Greek word, which is the translation of the word Messiah in the Hebrew. And the main point here is God has prepared people for this. This This didn't all of a sudden happen, that God cursed... Mankind sinned against God, they were separated from God, God laid the curse on them and forgot about them for two thousand or whatever thousands of years, and all of a sudden say, well, there's a savior, what do you know? I mean, you kind of wonder, well, you know, how come you didn't tell us about it? But he had. That's the whole point of the word Christ or Messiah, is from the beginning, we skipped that section in Genesis, but from the very beginning, God tells them that there will be a seed, that will come out of Eve and that seed will crush the head of the serpent, the one who instigated sin or brought sin into the world. So it was, from the very beginning, God was making promises that he would send some us to save us from our sins. And that gave something for the Old Testament saints, even Adam and Eve, to believe in and to be saved by, by trusting in the salvation God would provide. So, so finally, there is the fulfillment of it. He now has come. But to me, it's... Um, it's one of the uh, great reasons we have to trust in the salvation that Jesus offers. He didn't just show up as Savior saying, here, I'm here to save you. Well, you know, we didn't hear about you. They have. There's an assurance because they were told he was coming, he was coming, he was coming. Here I am. Well, you're prepared. So you have reason to believe and to trust that person. And the, the second title we have really completes our confidence or our reason to trust him to save us from our sins, and that is, he is Christ the Lord. And the word Lord may not mean a whole much, as there are many lords, uh, and many, in a sense, gods in this world, but the only one that angels will call Lord is the Lord of heaven and earth. So this is Christ the Lord. This is the one who is not just man, but God himself. And who would you be willing to trust your salvations for sin? For who could really save us from our sins? There's just one, there's God. So we have confidence to trust in him, not just because he is Savior, but because he is Christ, the long-promised Messiah, and he is God himself come in the flesh. So this is the good news, the summary of the good news that the angel brought them. And I, I agree, I think it's good news. This is the basis of why you can rejoice. Uh, any time of the season and no matter what the circumstance, which people over the ages have proved. Well, the first people who rejoice about it are the angels. The angel seems to just be coming out of everywhere now. And that's what we have for us in verses, uh, 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heaven, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, that's great that the angels rejoice, but you know what? The angels don't have half the reason to rejoice as we do. They're just spectators. They think, boy, this is really great. But for you and me, that should be our experience. We should have far more reasons to praise God for it than the angels do. Uh, Some years ago, I'm sure uh, most of you, if not all of you, remember Bill McDonald. Bill McDonald taught us a song. And uh, I, looked, I looked hard for the, the, uh, the piano uh, notes for it, so we could actually sing it again, but I couldn't find it. All I could find was the words. So if that's okay with you, I'll read you the words of the hymn. This is the hymn that Bill MacDonald taught us some years ago. The name of it is Holy, Holy is what the angels sing. There is singing up in heaven such as we have never known, where the angels sing the praises of the Lamb, Upon the throne, their sweet harps are ever tuneful, and their voices always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them, while we save, serve the Master here. So that's pretty thought, right? We'd, we'd like to praise God like the angels do, right. This is the refrain. I'll just read it once. Refrain reads: "Holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I expect to help them when they make the courts of heaven ring." But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. Yes, there's a reason that we have to praise God that the angels have never experienced. And that's what uh, the hymn continues to sing. But I hear another anthem, blending voices, clear and strong. Unto him who has redeemed us and hath bought us is the song. We have come through tribulation to this land so fair and bright. In the fountain freely flowing, he has made our garments white. The angels can't sing that, right? They, they didn't have anybody who redeemed them. Right? They always belonged to God. Nobody needed to buy them back to God. We needed that, not them. They didn't have to come through tribulation to the land so fair and bright. In the fountain flowing uh, freely flowing, he has made our garments white, not their garments. Their garments were always white. It's our garments that were made white. We talked about it this morning. Praising the Lord for His uh, stained power removing. Then the angels stand and listen, for they cannot join the song like the sound of many waters by that happy blood-washed throne. For they sing about great trials, battles fought, and victories won. And they, they praise their great Redeemer who has said to them, Well done. So, although I am not an angel, yet I know that over there I will join a blessed course that the angels cannot share. I will sing about my Savior who upon dark Calvary freely pardoned my transgressions, died to set a sinner free. We have reasons to rejoice Okay, let's move on in the passage. And uh, some things in this passage could raise a question. Why was the sign given that Christ has come into the world and to identify Christ as him lying in a manger? Again, in the feet of an animal. That's what the angel said. Right? This will be the sign to you, verse 12. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes Lying in a manger. It could have been any kind of a sign, if you think about it. God could have created a special golden casket, you know, ringed with diamonds, and uh, told Mary, when you're done delivering the baby, place him there. And he could have told the angel, you will find a baby in a golden casket, started with diamonds. There wasn't any like it in Bethlehem. That would have been a fair sign, right? Again, it'll show who the Messiah was. And yet, instead, he's placed in the feet of an animal, the meanest in all of Bethlehem. Why was that given as a sign? Well, let me suggest something to you. If you would turn with me to the book of Hebrews, and I promise it's the last time I'll make you turn away from Luke. We'll have to turn back to Luke after this. But Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, we sang about that, but he does give aid to the children or the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are So it's a long passage. It talks about the salvation that Christ brings to us. But it explains here, among other things, why he had to become a man. And one of the explanations given in this passage is he had to die. And and I think most of us understand it. If Christ didn't die, if he couldn't die for our sins, he couldn't save us. And yet it also talks here about the fact that he was made the same in verse 11, for example, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Christ had to come to our level and become like us in order to save us. Well, how low would Christ go? I mean, he can come to the earth and say, well, you know, I'm willing to come this far down, but, you know, please, you know, at least give me, you know, a nice... um, you know, apartment in Pacific Palisades. You know, I don't want to be really down with the low and dirty. Come on, how far low do I have to go? Well, in the crib in Bethlehem, he went to the bottom. There was none lower. And so when he talks about him not being ashamed to call us brethren and to become one with us in order to be able to save us with him, he's including everyone, which is why the angel could say this will be great joy to all people
1: None is exempted. There's nobody who
0: can say, well, Christ didn't come for me. You know, he came for the upper class. No. He came all the way down to include you and to include me as well. Uh, the other question that might come to mind is why do the angels show up to the shepherds? You would think, okay, well, the Messiah is finally here. You know, who should we send the proclam- proclamation of his arrival? Well, let's start with the high priest in the temple, right? And uh, let's do it. You know, maybe during the daylight when everybody can see. You know, let's make the news as as, as loud as possible for everyone to hear. And yet he chose the shepherds. And uh, to help with understanding maybe why, is the shepherds were in some way the lowest of society there. Okay, for one thing, uh, if you turn back to look, and you look carefully at these shepherds in verse 8, it says now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the field. So, in this particular occupation, you didn't have a home or at least you didn 't leave at home you didn 't have a comfortable bed to go to every night uh, you didn 't have a comfortable shower I, I love going camping in Yosemite and uh, but i 'm so glad that they have those showers though <laughs> that at the end of every day, I can get clean you know and, and, and go to bed more or less clean uh, with the dust that accumulated between the showers and where the cabin is but uh They didn't have that in those days. So, I mean, these were people roughing it out. If you want to think about the cowboys or whatever in this country, these were people living out in the fields. They didn't smell good. And this wasn't a pleasant life to live. That was the shepherd. To add to that, uh, you may have noticed, we'll cover it as we go through the gospel, Uh, there were a lot of laws that have been added to Judaism over the last several hundred years when it came to that time. Uh, you would think, you know, being a shepherd would be a respectful Jewish position, right? Because King David, he was a shepherd, right? But uh, they came up with all these rules that you have to wash. You know, before you eat your food, if you want to be clean, that is wholly sanctified, you have to wash your hand in a particular way. Uh, Sharon once went with me to a Hasidic Jewish house to go to their uh, Kabbalah Shabbat or a Friday night dinner. And, you know, they had her uh, take her rings off. When she washed her hand, you have to do it just the right way if you want to be ceremoniously clean. And uh, the guys out there living with the sheep had no chance. They had no chance. So, besides for having a job that was uncomfortable, uh, they they were considered ceremoniously unclean by the people. So these were the lowest of the law in Israel. So why will God go to those people? Well, let me suggest this to you. It says in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God needs an entry with us. people, and God can't enter people with any kind of pride or self-sufficiency. So it was the people that were out there with their sheep, broken, that God could have an entry. He could, he could share this with them, and they responded. And uh, we see their response, and that's really the last portion of this message, is uh, what was the result of this announcement of great joy to all people? How did people respond? Well, the first one are the shepherds, and uh, they respond very well. First of all, we see they believe the message that the angel told them. And um, we can tell they believe because they go to Bethlehem. They say, let's go see, right? In verse 15, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. So they believe. They want to go see it. And that's the second thing, is they want to find this Messiah. So they've just been told, the Messiah to save you from your sins has come. They want to find him. They're not going to rest that night until they get to see him. And that's the other good response to the good news, is seeking a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, the third thing we see them do, uh, verse 17, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. They proclaim, they tell everybody else. So this is really the ideal response to the good news. Number one, you believe it, Number two, you seek this personal relationship with Christ. And number three, you tell other people about it. Okay, so that's great. And really shows God's wisdom in picking these shepherds. He wouldn't have gotten this response with the priest of the temple. Too much pride and self-sufficiency. <clears throat> uh, the next group we see is what I will call the Bethlehemites. Or literally the people who dwell in Bethlehem in verse 18. And all those who heard it, they heard what they... Shepherds said they marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. This is all we know about them. But uh, it suggests that there was a problem. They were were excited. Boy, you know, I wish I was there to see that. That must have been some sight. Well, but there's no seeking of a relationship with the born Savior. And there's no telling to anybody else. So it seems that they've come short. They were somehow excited about it. But they've come short. And a confirmation we have is really, in the scriptures, we're told, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. So that may be talking of the uh, larger nation of Israel, but certainly applies to Bethlehem, where he was born, and they did not receive him. And we have a picture of that, in a sense. Uh, It's often used as an illustration. Uh, Think of, of Christ being born. He's coming to Bethlehem, obviously in the womb of Mary, and yet there was no room for him at the inn. Sorry, you sleep outside. Yeah, you can have that, that, uh, animal feed tray. That's where you can put your baby. There was no interest. And that's the way this world is. Which, uh, starts with the illustration I showed at the beginning. We want to have a winter festival. We want to have this joy and all this stuff. But we don't want to have Christ. Keep Jesus outside of it. So, instead, they fabricate the joy that lasts but a moment. And really, it's a disappointment. Uh, I, my, the very first message I preached in Calvary Bible Chapel, was a Christmas message. That's when it was the right time, the end of of December. But as I was looking at the passage of Christmas and gathering facts, one of the things I've learned is that the highest suicide rate time is around Christmas time. That's when most people take their own lives. And the reason for it is that they want all this joy. And they're trying to produce all this joy with the singing and the presents and the ornament, and they still can't find it. And when they try so hard and they still can't find joy Joy, that's when they end their own life. So true joy is found in the baby that was laid in the manger, not trying to fabricate it. Uh, the, the last person we see in this passage is Mary. And uh, it's interesting. It says, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And uh, I, I noticed the fact, it doesn't say that she, that she marveled or rejoiced or anything. Uh, why not? Well, first of all, she had a hard day. So don't give her a hard time. Um, Second of all, I think Mary wasn't expecting this. When she was told she was going to have the Messiah born out of her and he was going to rule over the world and she was excited about it, she didn't imagine this is how he was going to come into the world. And uh, I don't think her and and, uh, Joseph were this poor, but they were away from home. You know, and the people of town were not showing them hospitality. There was nothing else they could do. But she didn't imagine that the best she could offer her own child was a, was an animal feed truck. So I think, I think she was struggling with that. But on the good side, it says she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. So just because she didn't understand, she couldn't see how things fit, she didn't discard it. She said, well, I'll hold on to it and see how this all works out. And that's good. So maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I can't figure it out. But hold on to it. Don't give up. Stick with it. And we will see Mary at the end will be able to rejoice as well. Uh, Finally, how about you? How did you respond to this babe that came and was born in Bethlehem? Did you find in him reason to rejoice and to well share with others? Are you confused or are you like the people who had no room for Jesus and said, well, I have enough going on in my life. You sleep outside. You stay outside. One day, you will want him to have room at his side for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We recognize sending your son into this lowly place was the greatest wonder this world as ever knew, until the cross where we saw how much farther he was willing to go for us. We give you thanks for him. If there's anybody here that missed receiving that salvation that he came to offer us, Lord, we pray that they might receive it, that they might receive it soon. In Jesus' name.